Today's reading is Psalm 103. Hear the word of the Lord. Of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He has made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. For as, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone and in its place it knows no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the, vi- the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, church. Uh, My name is Caleb, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm really excited to be sharing a message from God's word with you all this morning. Uh, before we continue in worship, um, through, through the preaching time, I just wanted to invite you all to pray with me uh, for God to be active um, as, as we engage his word and, and active in speaking to us through it. So would you please, would you please pray with me? Uh, dear Lord, God, we praise you for who you are, and, and we just thank you for the privilege we have to worship you with other believers today. And God, I ask that you... Uh, Speak through me as I try to communicate your word uh, to these people, um, but, but also God be working inside each and every one of us, uh, tuning our hearts and our minds and our eyes to see and hear uh, what you would have to say to us today, um, and may we be changed by encountering your truth this morning. Lord, we love you. It's your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, if you can believe it, we're just like two weeks away from Christmas, which is crazy. And uh, yeah, I'm super excited for it. But if you're like me, do you ever find yourselves during the holiday season uh, getting bored of Christmas? And I don't mean getting bored of the like, festivities around the holidays, but do you ever find yourself getting tired of the Christmas story? If you're, if you're like me, you've been following Jesus for some time. Uh, each year, we you know, read the same story devotionally. We go through it as a church on Sundays. We sing a lot of the same, same, same songs. And it can be really easy as we go through the Christmas story 
to think about uh, as, as, as we're hearing it, oh, I know that already. You know, I know Jesus was born of a virgin. I know he was put in a manger surrounded by smelling animals and the shepherds came and the wise men came. I know that, I know that. And start to let this good news of our Savior's birth just fade into the background and become background noise that we tune out. But when that happens, the danger in kind of letting the Christmas story become routine and become old news is that when we as believers let the good news become old news, we are in danger, as, as our passage says this morning, of forgetting all his benefits. And, that, and biblically, forgetting, it's so much more, remembering and forgetting are so much more than, than, than just plain like, mental recall of facts. But according to in the, in the mindset of the Bible, to remember and is, is more than that. It's about bringing into your awareness a truth allowing it to affect you emotionally, and then allowing that to influence your actions. That's what it really means to remember and not forget biblically. And that's so important for us as believers because when the good news becomes old news and we're forgetting God and his benefits, the gospel can lose its transformative power in our life, as we're going to see today in our passage. That when the good news becomes old news, the gospel can lose its power to transform us. And so we're going to be looking at that today, and, and as we go through our, continue to go through our Advent series, uh, through the book of Psalms, looking at the promised king. You know, this, this idea of remembering, it's why Christians have practiced uh, Advent for, for centuries and centuries throughout church history, because it's so important for us as believers each year to slow down and focus on the Christmas story, and not just remember the facts, but experience that Christmas story together in worship and allow it to affect us and change us and change how we show up in the world. And so today, as we, as we turn to Psalm 103, as we continue this series, we're going to see uh, a psalm that David wrote and where he talks about the king's rescue. He talks about how his God, uh, his king, rescued him and how he's supposed to remember that. And, and David, through the psalm, he gives us this challenge of how we can remember God's rescue of us as well. And so the challenge he gives to us today is for us to remember our rescue, to remember your rescue is what he is challenging us to do this morning. And we're going to see as we go through this psalm, we're going to see three things as we're trying to remember our rescues. We're going to see and, and how, we, how we are to remember the kind of rescue that we've had, what, what God has saved and rescued us from. We're going to see how remembering our rescue leads us to remember our rescuer and think about the character and attributes of the person who saved us. And then lastly, we're going to see what remembering our rescue leads us to do. So those are those three things today. Before we jump in, I just want to say again, remembering biblically is so much more than, than recalling facts to our brains. And it's allowing those truths, our awareness of them, to affect what we feel and affect what we do. So, so let's say this afternoon, uh, I go home and my wife and I are going to have guests over this evening. And so she asks me, hey, Caleb, would you mind like vacuuming our floor? Because we have this dog, Milo, who just sheds like an inch uh, on the ground of like fur every week. It's insane how much you get, how that little dog can shed each week. But anyway, she asked me, hey, can you vacuum the floor? I'm going to go run some errands. Um, but we need to get the stuff done before people come over. And then she goes, runs errands. She comes back. And I'm just laying on the couch watching TV. And Milo's hair is still all over the floor. And because she's, you know, such a kind wife, she'll say, so Caleb, like, did you forget to like vacuum the floor today? And I'm like, no, I, rem I remembered you said that. Uh, but I just didn't want to. And I'm just going to lay here on the couch. <laughs> so... In, in a biblical mindset, I wasn't remembering what my wife told me. 
I was thinking, I could recall the mental information that she told me or asked me to vacuum the floor, but because I didn't let that truth um, sit in my brain and, and, and be embodied in me and how it affected my emotions and desires to love and care for my wife and let that come out into actions of actually following through and vacuuming the floor, in a biblical sense, I had forgotten to vacuum the floors. And that's, 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 we see that sense throughout scripture of what remembering looks like. One example of that is in 2 Peter 1, uh, or 2 Peter 1, verse 8 through 9. Peter is talking to a group of people there, and he tells them, if you possess these qualities, and these qualities are kind of virtues and habits that believers should have to imitate Christ, if you, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them, does not have these virtues in increasing measure, is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. And so for Peter and most of the writers throughout the Bible to not be growing over time in, in, in your Christ-like character and virtue, what that means is you're forgetting what God has done for you. And so the pathway to Christian growth biblically is to remember God, remember his rescue of us and not just the facts of it, but let it actually affect our emotions, our desires, and our actions as we live that out. And we see that throughout scripture that whenever God gives commands to his people, often he precedes those commands by telling them to remember something. Even the Ten Commandments begin with, remember the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Or even many stories throughout the Bible of God's people disobeying him and turning away from God are often preceded by a story of how God's people forgot God or forgot something about him. So it's so important that we do what David does in the psalm and remember the Lord. And we're going to see how he does that because David gives us a great picture and a great model for how he practically can remember God and remember his rescue of us in our daily lives. So as you turn to Psalm 103, we're going to go through that together. Now, as, as a psalm starts, it's interesting that David doesn't tell us the life situation that he was in when he wrote the psalm. If you notice that when, it was, when the scripture was read, it's just called a Psalm of David. And often other, other Psalms of David will begin by saying, this was a Psalm David wrote when he was running from his son Absalom, or this was a Psalm David wrote after he was confronted, after his affair with Bathsheba. But this Psalm, there's no situation associated with it. Which seems to suggest to me that this was a Psalm or a prayer that David would, would pray often. And it was one that was applicable in many life situations because he never outgrew the need to remind himself of God and his rescue of him. But he starts the psalm like this in verse one. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. So David begins and he is asking God to, or he's telling himself, he's telling his soul, his inmost uh, seat of desires and emotions to bless and to praise God. But he, he links that action, blessing the Lord, with another action in, in, the, in these verses. He links it, links it with not forgetting. And in Hebrew parallelism, this, this po poetical device, when you link those uh, verbs together in, in those verses like this, they're meant to be seen as mutually interpreting and explaining each other. So what it means to bless the Lord in his soul and what it means to not forget the Lord's benefits are meant to be seen together, that that. Not remembering the Lord and what he has done for David is going to lead him to praise and bless the Lord. And blessing the Lord, what that looks like is not forgetting what God has done for him. And so he, can, he continues 
in verse, in verse three, kind of describing what he's not meant to forget about the benefits God has given him. He says, forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. So David describes what his rescue is in these verses. He describes that his rescue that God has done for him is primarily first and foremost forgiving him of his sins. That's another word for iniquity, these actions and attitudes and desires that go against the way God created him to live. And God forgave him of those and that God did not hold those against him and is choosing to treat him differently than would be just and fair for him to treat David because of those sins. Then after kind of naming that kind of first basic, what the rescue of God is, is him forgiving the sins of David, David goes through and gives us a few images that describe uh, what, what forgiveness of sins looks like. So the first one he says is, who heals, my, who heals the soul's diseases. So he, the, in here, he's talking, remember he's speaking to his soul. He's telling his soul to bless the Lord and he tells his soul, don't forget that God has healed you of your diseases. Now this word disease in this context is, is not talking primarily about physical disease. Although of course, like God is a God of healing and desires to heal our bodies and, and, and sickness and, and disease are not meant to be a part of the world that God created and one day we won't experience sickness or death in this world. But in this context, disease is being used as a picture or an image of sin. Because just like uh, sickness and disease is what happens to a body when it's not functioning the way it's supposed to be, in a similar way, sin is when we are spiritually not functioning and living the way we're supposed to be. And so because of that, sin is not just something we need to be forgiven of. Our rescue is not just God like saying, it's, it's okay, there's no big deal that you've sinned. But our sins need to be healed because we have developed habits and attitudes and behaviors that have harmed us and harmed other people and, and part of God's rescue and salvation of us is him transforming and healing our, our desires uh, to, to shift those towards desiring and thinking the right things. More, so not just forgiving our sins, but healing us from our sins as well. David gives another image of being freed from a trap, what it looks like for God to rescue us from our sins. In, verse, in, in, that, in those next verses, he says, you know, you have redeemed my life from the pit. Now, this word pit, it refers to a hole in the ground that a hunter would dig, something like this, where they would dig or create this big hole and they would lay like uh, twigs or branches and leaves on top of it so that like a lion or a gazelle would come by not knowing that there's a trap there and would step onto those uh, branches, they would break and the lion would fall and then be trapped inside this pit. And in doing so, he's given us this image that sin is like that. Sin are these actions that you might think, oh, this is not so bad. This is not going to harm me or no one's going to know about this. But engaging in those actions are like falling into a pit. You don't know the full consequences of them. And before you know it, these decisions you've made have made decisions for you. And you've lost your freedom and you're ensnared and trapped by those sins. And so it's not, as a, it's not enough to just want to be different or try to be different and try to change our lives because sin is a trap that we are caught in and we need someone else, someone outside the pit to, pu to pull us out of that and to rescue us from it. And that's what God's rescue of our sins is like. 
And then the last image that David gives here, after he's talked about how God's rescued him from his sins, healed his, his, healed his diseases, rescued him from the pit, it's not just enough for God to save us from things, but God saves us for things and saves us for certain experiences. And he talks about how God crowns his soul with, with good things, with love and mercy and satisfies him and renews his life, renews his youth like an eagle. And he's speaking about having a greater quality of spiritual life, of intimacy with God and experiencing his delight and love for him. That is also a part of God's rescue for David and for us as well. Because David here, he's not just, he begins by talking about his own personal experience of being rescued, how God has saved him, his inmost self, his soul, very deep and very personal. But he shifts after explaining that to see that God's rescue is bigger than him individually. It's bigger than you or me. It's for all people. It's for all his people. So in verse six, he continues, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made his ways known to Moses and his acts to the people of Israel. So David goes bigger than just his own life, and he looks broader at that. What has God done, not just for me, but for all the people who are oppressed and downtrodden? But also not just what God is doing in his own lifetime, in his own social location and culture, but he thinks back into history. What has God, God done for Israel all the way back to Moses, to bringing the Israelites out of exit, out of Egypt out of slavery and, and by giving them a law and revealing God's ways to them in the desert. He's, he's thinking about these stories of how God has time and time again redeemed and rescued Israel and saved them from their sins. Because it's, it's his rescue is bigger than just David's personal life. And so as, as he's doing this, he invites us to do the same as well. As we think about our, and remember our own personal rescues, how God saved us personally from our sins, it's also important to remember how, and hear how God has saved other people from their sins. For us to tell our stories to one another, how, how God has stepped into our lives and rescued and redeemed us and healed us. And not just for people we know, but even to read through his, throughout history and across the world how God is, is living and active across time and space in people's lives and redeeming and restoring people. And as we read and we hear those stories and we remember our own stories and we remember other people's stories, that builds our faith, that builds our trust in God that since he did that for other people, he can also do the same for me as well. And so remembering our rescue is so important. We remember the kind of rescue that we had, how God saved us from our sins, all, that, all the various ways that that entails. And remembering that's bigger than just us and includes other people as well. But remembering our rescue ultimately leads us to remember the rescuer. It's not just about what God has done to us, but about what his actions towards us reveal to us about God and his character. And that's what David does in verse eight. He continues by saying, the Lord, uh, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. You see, after reflecting on his own personal history and also the history of Israel, David sees this truth about God, that he's merciful and gracious and loving and forgiving. Because as he looks through Israel's history, he sees time and time again, God's people have chosen to rebel against him and to not live the way God created them to be. And they've fallen into foreign oppressors and fallen into other, other, other dangers and challenges. But each time, 
God has stepped in again and again and redeemed and restored his people. And so he's able to look at that and say, the God that we have who rescues us is a God who's slow to anger because he keeps stepping in to save us. David looks at his own personal life as well as a man who was the king of Israel and used his power and his authority to, uh, to have an affair with the wife of one of his best friends. And then after that, he uses his power and authority to, to murder that friend, to cover up his affair. And when, when Nathan the prophet comes to confront him on this, David himself says that the person who would do such things like this deserves death. And so he knows firsthand that God does not, is not the kind of God who treats him in accordance to what his sins deserve, but treats him with mercy instead because he was not put to death for those sins, but he was forgiven by God. And so he's able to praise God for that, knowing that you don't treat me like I deserve. You treat me better because you are that kind of a Lord, a kind of a rescuer that we have who's kind and gracious and compassionate. And then David continues in verse 11. After just naming this truth, he starts to give images of what this truth is like and what it looks like. So in verse 11, he says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. So David imagines like the highest thing he can possibly imagine, the highest point of the sky. He says that's as high, even as high as that, as large as that. That's how large God's love is for us. And he thinks about the two furthest things, furthest apart that he can imagine, east and west, total opposite directions. And that's how far God has removed our sins from us, he's saying. And that's why God is able to treat us not according to our sins, because he's removed them from us and he has that great compassion for us. David continues in, in verse 13, describing you know, why God is such a God of mercy and compassion. He says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame and he knows that we are dust. You know, the best parents are the ones who recognize that their kids are just kids. And even as their parents are helping their children kind of grow in how they, into becoming who God made them to be and becoming mature adults, good parents know that their kids are kids and it's gonna take some time. And so they're concerned not about their kids being perfect, but they're, cons- they're more concerned about there being progress. And so then they have compassion and grace on their children to keep that relationship restored and growing even when their kids mess up. If that's true of the best human parents that we know, how much more must that be true of, of the, our Heavenly Father who is perfect, who recognizes that we are dust, who recognizes that we are created creatures and he's the creator and because of that we have limitations. And it's gonna take us time to grow into full maturity. And so he's the kind of God who has compassion on us, who as he is more concerned about progress and perfection, he knows when we fall short, he's gonna forgive us and have compassion on us as he seeks to grow us towards who he made us to be. And that distinction between us and God is something that we need to remember and something that David brings up again, that, that there's a, a, a drastic difference between who we are and who God is, that we are dust and he is eternal. He is the rescuer, we are the rescued. And he describes that more in, in verse 15. He says, as for man, talking about after, after talking about man is dust, he says, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like the flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. 
his righteousness to children's children and to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. See, God is able to rescue us, is able to redeem us and save us from our sins because he is so unlike us, because he's eternal and we are finite. And remembering our own finiteness, as, as, as David does here, helps us see how great and powerful God is. And, and remember he, that he is the one who rescues us. You know, it's so easy in our modern world to like, deceive ourselves as human beings that we are all powerful and we are all sufficient. If we just look around at human history, at the stage of, 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 especially in Western human history, we've been able as human beings to do some pretty incredible things of how we've used the raw materials of creation to build and create, expand our lifetimes. And so we can really lull ourselves with the kind of high quality of living we have in developed countries like the United States into thinking that we as human beings are all sufficient, that we are almost eternal, that we will never die. And that's why death is something we don't know how to talk about well in our culture. We, we are all kind of caught under this illusion, although we know it to be true that we'll all die one day, that every person in this room is going to die one day. We try to do things to, uh, to make us not think about that reality. We, we try as much as we can to push death away and not think about it. And as a result, we don't know how to talk about grief in our culture or talk about death, which is why I'm so excited about our new gallery exhibit out there about grief and about processing those emotions and Kelly Cruz, our gallery curator, is going to be up here at the end of the service to kind of talk a little bit more about our new exhibit and how you can engage in that in a, in a spiritual practice. But we as a culture, we don't know how to talk about death. And we are under some illusion that somehow we're going to be eternal and we're going to live for, forever and be able to accomplish anything we want to on our own. But the truth of the matter is all of us, just about all of us, will be forgotten even by our families within a few generations. If you don't believe me, how many people here can name all of their great-grandparents? Anyone? I can't. I sure can't name all eight of my great-grandparents, which is crazy because they're, they're my family. And, and I'm sure many people here, but I can't remember all their great-grandparents. And so what that means is likely everyone here, if you, have great, if you have grandkids, your grandkids' children will have no idea who you are and you're a part of their family. It's super inspiring, right? <laughs> but that's the truth. We as human beings, as, as David says in the Psalms, are like the flower of the field. We're like a dandelion that comes up in springtime and looks great for a little bit, but the wind comes and just blows it away. As human beings, we are here today and we're gone tomorrow. That's why we need a rescuer. And that's why we need a rescuer who is so unlike us, who his character is eternal, and who has the power, whose, whose love for us never ends because he is an eternal, all-powerful God. That is what we need in this life. But there's this built-in tension in this psalm that, that David is drawing out about, God's, about the character of our rescuer. So on the one hand, David talks about how, how God is someone who is gracious and compassionate and loving and kind and merciful. He's also someone who's all-powerful and all-knowing and also is a God who works for justice and works for righteousness and defends the oppressed. And it's hard for those two things to be seen as coming together. And they can seem, from our perspective, to be contradictory to one another. And David's aware of that, and he actually leans into that tension in verse 8 by, he it by referencing a very well-known passage from the Hebrew Bible 
But in referencing this passage and quoting it, he changes the last bit of it in a way that's pretty surprising or would have been really surprising for his original audience who would know that verse so well. It's kind of like here in Kansas City. You know, I've only been here a year and a half, but if, if I know anything about Kansas City, I know that people here sing the national anthem a little different. And so no matter where you are, even if you're at a soccer game, if you're singing the last few lines, the national anthem, you'd say, you know, oh, uh, the, the star-spangled banner yet wave or still wave over the land of the free and the home of the... Yes, that's you just know how to finish it. It's crazy. Like, I was really surprised me the first time I was here and heard that. I was like, what in the world is going on? But you just know, in this culture, that's how you finish that line. In a similar way, uh, David is referencing Exodus 34, 6, where God is revealing his character to Israel and revealing who he is and his name. And he says, I am the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. Let me read verse eight from our psalm again. As he quotes that, but changes the end in pretty dramatic way, he says in verse eight, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So all the same so far. He starts to change it a little bit. He says, he will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. Now, that's a little bit of a change, but it's like, okay, that's all right. Still checking out. Then, get this, in verse, nine, in verse 10, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. That seems, as you first read it, to really go against what most people would expect in reading this psalm as Jews. They would know that you finish this line by saying, the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. But here David says, he does not treat us according to our sins. Now, is David like disagreeing with Moses? Is David saying, you know, Moses back then, he thought God was a God of wrath, but now I know God's, God's gracious. I don't think so. Because even in David's psalm here, he talks about how God is a God of justice and righteousness and he defends the oppressed. So David still holds that hope that God is a God of righteous. He doesn't want to worship a God who just is gonna forgive everything and let everything go. But no, what I, I think is going on here is that David is holding out hope for a future deliverer, for someone to come who would rescue God's people one day finally and, and fulfilly, and able to be both fulfill the righteous requirements of God, but also still finally rescue us from our sins and allow us to experience God's love and grace and mercy. And in doing so, David spoke more than he knew, because God would one day come as the promised king to finally rescue and redeem his people from their sins. And so we celebrate every year in Advent. Just one passage of that in Luke 1, verse 76. Uh, Zechariah, who's the father of John the Baptist, is kind of giving this prophecy over his son, John. And he's speaking about he's going to be the one who's going to point to how God is finally going to redeem, rescue, and save his people and forgive their sins. He tells, he tells John, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord, prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. That the, the rescue and, del- and deliverance that is finally going to happen for God's people is a final solution to, to saving and redeeming them from their sins. And, and this is what John the Baptist did. Even before he was born, as an unborn child in his mother's womb, as, as Jesus came in Mary's womb, he leapt for joy. He was excited and rejoiced 
in his mother's womb to see Jesus come and, and communicated to his mother Elizabeth that this is God's chosen one to save his people. As an adult, he would have a whole ministry pointing people to Jesus. He would see and one day point to his cousin Jesus and say, behold, look at this person. Here is the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Because Jesus is that promised king. He is our true rescuer, the true embodiment of God's eternal character who is able to finally fulfill you, rescue us from our sins. Because God dealt with Jesus according to our sins. He dealt with Jesus according to our iniquities so that we as his people can be treated according to his righteousness. Because you see, at, at the essence of sin is, is this truth that all of us have forgotten God. All of us struggle to, to remember God. In, in Romans 1, the Apostle Paul says that all human beings have suppressed the truth about God in unrighteousness that human beings in our, in our sinful fallen nature are trying to forget about God. And we'll even create gods. As religious people, we'll create gods and we'll create gods in our own image that we can use to help us distract us from God, that, we can, that gods that we can control, that don't challenge us, don't challenge our preconceived notions. And we are doing everything we can as human beings to forget God and not let who he is affect us and change how we live in this world. And so the only fair thing and what do you think? What do you think would be the fair and just thing for God to do to human beings, a whole human race that has been choosing to forget and ignore him? The only fair and just thing in my mind would be for God to also forget and ignore those humans, ignore those people he created because they have chosen to forget and ignore him. But instead, God does not do that because every year at Christmas, we celebrate the truth that God did not forget us but came to the earth as a human being to, to save and redeem us. That he was born as a human, he lived, identified with sinful humanity, he lived a perfect life, always remembering God and obeying him. And so if anyone would deserve to be, to be remembered by God and treated rightly by him, it would be Jesus. But instead, Jesus is forgotten by God when he dies on the cross and he experiences and feels abandoned by God. But in, in doing so, he, he, play, he dies in our place and he suffers that rejection in our place that we can be remembered and accepted by God. And even Jesus is remembered by God and brought back from the dead three days later to show us that we also will be remembered by him one day. And so this is what we're, we, we should do. This is what David shows us how to do. Remembering the rescue that God has given to us, the kind of rescue it is. Remembering how that shows us the character of our rescuer, the kind of person who rescued us. And those things lead us finally to our third thing today, what remembering our rescue leads us to do. And that's how David finishes this psalm. He talks about how, how this remembering leads us all to universal praising and rejoicing. He says in verse 20, Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his host, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, and all places of dominion, Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. So the psalm ends the way it started with David calling himself to bless and praise the Lord and rejoice in him, but it's bigger than just David at this point. He's calling all creation, all things around him to bless and praise the Lord after they've remembered who he is and what he has done for them. Because remembering, once again, it's so much deeper than thinking just the right things and having the right mental information, but it's bringing that into your awareness 
allowing those truths to affect your emotions, to affect the way you feel, and then also living that out in actions that correspond to what those truths are. And the problem, the reason so many of us struggle to remember in just an only a like information fact-based way is that most of us are, are doing that in a way that only engages half our brain. So recently I've been reading this book. Uh, it's called The Other Half of Church with uh, our community group leaders at, at our campus. Now I had to read this book for work. I was assigned to read it. And I didn't want to read it by myself. So I was like, hey, I want to make the community group leaders read it with me. <laughs> so I have some, some, some camaraderie in this. Um, but also, I wanted, we wanted to read it together because we want our community groups to be a space where we're not just engaging information, but we're also having this relational experience with one another and experiencing God in that way. Because this book talks about how in, in modern Western Christianity, as, as a result of kind of our pushing against like the Enlightenment and modernism, the um, American church has really gone deeply into seeing that the way people are formed or developed or grow as Christians is just by receiving the right information. If we can know the right things, we'll be the right people. The problem with that is it's not engaging our brains the way God created them to be. That we're only engaging the left half of our brain that focuses on information processing and, 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 process, and cognitive processes, but we're leaving out the right half of the brain that focuses on relational connection, on emotional awareness, on, on experiencing joy with others. And so the community group leaders and I, we're reading this book together over these next few months, and we're trying to figure out how we can make our community groups at our church a space where we don't just like, discuss sermons, Bible studies, the left half of our brain, which is super important, but we also have this right half of the brain where we engage in these relational practices, where we experience joy with one another and build trust, and that just enables all of us to grow in our faith and become the kind of people God created us to be. And that's why, right, these practices like confession are so important. That when we, when we, as we're remembering our own sins and we name those out loud to God, but also name those out loud to other people and we experience forgiveness from another person who's standing as in the place of Jesus in our lives and is forgiving us and communicating and reminding us that Jesus has forgiven us. That practice, uh, it, it teaches us of God's truth and helps us remember that in a full-brained, a full-bodied way. Also practices like gratitude, of remembering the good things that God has done for you and, act, and taking time to slow down and, and think of those good things in a way that affects your emotions and training yourself to experience joy and delight in who God is and what he's done for you. That's also why engaging the arts and, and creativity is so important as believers. That's why we sing together as a church every Sunday. It's not just because that's the right thing to do as Christians, to sing songs on Sunday mornings. Because when we sing, well, when, when I'm speaking right now, we're primarily engaging the left half of our brain. But when we, we sing songs together, if we're intentional about it, we're engaging the right half of our brains. We're allowing ourselves to be emotionally affected as we're singing and reflecting on God and his character and how he's rescued us. And doing that with others allows us to experience those truths in a deeper way. And that's why it's important as we're singing and worshiping to engage our full bodies as we're singing because that helps us keep, keep this practice of singing from remaining just solely like a left brain informational exercise. And get me, I'm, I'm someone who's very uncomfortable moving, moving my hands or moving my body in worship. <laughs> I, I just damn. I remember a few years ago, I was in a worship service 
at, at my college, and uh, the worship leader was being very, very direct about, like, raise your hands, people, come on, like, be happy to praise the Lord, and I was getting so frustrated uh, inside, because I'm like, bro, you don't even know me. Like, I'm a very, like, calm, chill person. Like, I just don't get excited about many things. I'm just very even-killed and calm. And at that, at that moment, I think I remember this question came to my brain. I don't know if it was the Holy Spirit or just myself, but this question came to me, and it said, Caleb, what about when you watch soccer? Now, if you've ever been with me while I watch soccer, I am not a calm, relaxed, even-killed person watching soccer. Like, I, I will get up at 6 a.m. on Saturday mornings and go to, to, uh, to the Chicken and Pickle in North Kansas City and watch with the official Liverpool Supporters Club of Kansas City and watch my team in England with, like, 20 other people, and I'm cheering and getting super excited about how Liverpool's doing, about a soccer game, about a sport. People running around chasing the ball. I'll get super excited. And so there's, there's that, there, we all have things like that, right? We all have things in our lives that just naturally, as human beings, we engage our bodies and we engage our emotions to celebrate and take joy in those things. And that doesn't mean, hear me when I say this, you know, we don't all have to look the same way as we're worshiping. We're not doing this for other people. Um, but for ourselves, there's ways that each of us individually, there are ways that are appropriate for us to engage our bodies, engage our emotions as we're singing and praising God because we do that for other things in our lives. And that practice of, of intentionally choosing to do that as we're rejoicing in God, as we're remembering what he's done for us, not letting that remain just facts and cognitive information, but letting that actually transform who we are and, and become embodied in our, in, our, in our whole body is important. And that's what David has showed us to do in this psalm. In, in reflecting on the different ways God has saved him, the different elements of God's character, and in just calling himself and other people to bless and praise the Lord with exuberant praise. And so let's do that this Christmas season, right? As we're entering a season where we hear the same stories and sing the same songs over and over again, let's not let those, the, that good news of Jesus' birth become old news. Let's take time to slow down and fully engage our brains and bodies in remembering our rescue. Let's remember what we were rescued from, the nature of how great of a salvation we have that God saved, that God did for us. Let's remember how that teaches us about God and his character, and let's remember and praise him for that. Let's remember not just with, our, with only one side of our brains, but with our whole brains and our whole bodies, and allow ourselves to rejoice in the truth that God has rescued us. Let's do that together, and let's pray to close. Lord, uh, we just praise you for who, who you are and what you've done for us in rescuing each and every one of us. And God, just, just enable us to remember you, not just the facts, not just the information, but allow that information to transform who we are, to experience it in our full bodies and brains as you designed them, and allow us to do that in a community where we experience your love and rescue. God, remind us of these truths and allow us to experience them. Lord, we love you. And it's your son, Jesus' name, that we pray. Amen.